Hello, I'm Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to or watching Radio Maine. Today I have with me a dear friend and colleague from my workplace, which I will not name, except to say that we both are at the same um, Augusta-Waterville area health system, and this is our patient experience coordinator, Wayne Parody. Thanks for joining me today. It's absolutely my pleasure to be here, Lisa. So you and I actually share something that I think almost immediately when I joined Maine General, I could tell we we were going to be in sync about. And that is the importance of making the patient experience a good one. Because healthcare these days, I mean, it already is stressful because people come in to see us and they're upset or they're in pain or they have questions and uncertainty. So it's just right out of the gate, it's a very difficult thing to be in healthcare. But there are ways that we can make it more or less uncertain, you know, more or less scary. And um, I have always thought, you know, that really should be a big part of my job. And that is essentially the entirety of your job. It is. So tell me about your job and how you got to be a patient experience coordinator. Well, Lisa, I had a very circuitous route to um, the role I, I hold today at our work at our workplace. Uh, I began as a, way back as a stay-at-home parent, believe it or not. Um, the only guy in a field that was largely female. Uh, and it was through that work that I learned quickly how to socialize with just about anyone. And when I came back to the workplace, at the place we work now, I, I meandered through in different roles, starting in prevention. Then I, I worked in, as a health coach for the organization. And what ha- something interesting happened um, right at the beginning of the pandemic. Um, many staff where we work were redeployed, um, and I was redeployed um, to our cancer center. And in that capacity, uh, much different role, screening people for COVID. And it was through that process that I watched people at their worst days of their lives come alive as a result of how I interacted with them. Um, to the point where they made me a badge that said Prince Charming. And while that might sound a little, a, a little uh, you know, silly, it was a badge of honor that I carried very closely. And as it turns out, uh, what was happening there at the, at the entrance of that facility uh, essentially was shaping that patient or each individual patient's experience. And it was noticed by others around me that for, you know, this guy's got a knack for turning the mundane into something that's pleasurable for other people. And one thing led to another, uh, an opportunity opened up where we work, and I was gratefully chosen to um, carry on this important work for our organization. And that is the ideology of how I became where I am now. And frankly, I love coming to work every day because I know individually we can make differences simply by being present with people and doing those small things that don't tell the patient or or suggest to the patient, you know, what's the matter with you, but rather what matters to you. I think I first met you when you were still doing prevention and you came in. So our organization has a two day orientation and we, we call the first day, day one, not, not a super creative name, but I'm not criticizing. It is day one. And you came in and you were talking about wellness with a group of people that you'd never met before, kind of a disparate, um, mishmash of, we had some administrators, we had some doctors, we had some um, front office staff, housekeeping, and you were like, I am going to get everybody excited about uh, healthy living and prevention and, you know, like wearing our Fitbits and wearing our sneakers and like, what can we do for you to make your life better? And I could tell that day that you had this background in health coaching. 
that you're like, I'm going to try to get this group excited. I don't know them. They don't know me, but I'm going to try to get this group excited. Why did you go into kind of the area of health coaching that you started with where I first intersected with you? I was always fascinated by behavior change and uh, other models for for behavior change, whether it's the trans-theoretical model, uh, motivational interviewing. I really enjoyed psychology and social sciences. And what health coaching did is it put me in a place to kind of draw into what was, I'd like to think, innate as far as, you know, where my strengths lie. And amusingly, in a way, is this translates very closely into my current position, you know, with patient experience, it's leveraging behavior to create sweeping change in our, you know, or continued process improvement changes with our, with our entire staff to affect a change that builds loyalty at our hospital. People don't always remember, you know, much about their appointment, but they remember how they felt. They remember how folks interacted with them. This drives loyalty, you know, as much as oftentimes, as much as the clinical outcomes that they potentially get down the road. So did you major in psychology as an undergraduate or do you, did you have any sort of academic background? Sociology. Um, and, you know, the, that can go a lot of ways, um, it, you know, vocationally. Um, but I was drawn to, drawn to cognitive behavioral work and aspects of behavior, um, it, that background drew me to this type of work. And, and my predecessor, he saw that in me and he, and he, he said, you ought to apply for this when, when, when I retire. And it was, you know, it was absolute, an absolute honor to be, to be esteemed as highly as that, to step into someone's shoes that had done things so well and paved the way. So here I sit continuing to evol- evolve with everything that I've learned and everything I continue to learn in the name of what will keep our patients coming back. But not just because it's a game, but because this is really what people need. And, and that understanding of people and that background in sociology, I think, is so much more necessary than sometimes we think. And, and actually, our, our new slash current CEO from the healthcare system we work with, um, this person's background was actually in sociology. That was his undergraduate major at a small liberal arts college, which and then went on to get a business degree. But I just think that that's so interesting that that was where that person's mind went initially because understanding where people are coming from, kind of either scientifically or just behaviorally or interpersonally, I mean, it just it makes such a huge difference as to how much you can affect change. It absolutely does. And for so many people, no matter what it is, whether it's your mechanic, the dentist, if someone gets the sense that the relationship is transactional in nature... Really think about that. They want my money. This is just in and out, nothing personal about the experience. I'm wooable elsewhere. I want to go someplace where someone knows who I am, uses my preferred name, uh, remembers things about what I shared with them the last time. These are quote unquote soft skills. These are critical skills. These are skills that keep any, any organization healthy. Starbucks, you name it. If they do these things better, they're going to gain more market share. Coffee's the same pretty much everywhere. I mean, I suppose I'm a, I'm a, I'll admit off the record, since no one's watching this, that I'm a coffee snob, so I have my preference. But with that said, coffee's coffee. Groceries are groceries. People go to certain places. It's because of their experience there, their loyalty. That's, we drive that every day with every interaction we have with every individual person. 
one of the reasons I wanted to have you come in and talk with me on the show is because I had watched a Grand Rounds that you gave, and it was about communication, which, of course, we're, we're talking on a show, so you, it's about communication, right? So for me, this is extremely dear to my heart. And I've heard people say, well, you know, what difference does it make? They're just words. It's just semantics. And I'm like, I do not believe in that at all. I think words are everything and how they're delivered is everything. And so when you are giving this grand rounds, that was so kind of focal to the message that you were sharing. Um, Did somebody ask you to give that grand rounds about communication and patient experience? Or was this something that you came up with on your own? It's something I came up with on my own because what underpins most dissatisfaction in any experience is a lack of communication. Uh, People mean well. Um, But that doesn't mean the words that folks use are going to align with their meaning. Uh, Many studies show that our words are just a small part of our communication. Our body language is the biggest part, our tone. I could say something that sounds creepy and, and then the next sentence say the same thing and it sounds welcoming. How are you? How are you? Right? There's two different things, same words. And we have to be absolutely cognizant of the tone we use, our word choice, uh, how we apologize, how we do service recovery. If we do these things in a way that blames someone else or puts them on the defensive, you know, we are swimming upstream at that point. So it's absolutely crucial to challenge our teams to look at how individually they communicate with our customers um, to ensure that people are spreading the word about this. There's an expression, when you're good, you tell people. When you're great, people tell you. I use this analogy a lot. We all know that singer who says they're a good singer. And we, well, I'm sure you are, right? But if we hear that from somebody else, all of a sudden they're a good singer. In any hospital, any restaurant, any ice cream shop, when it's great, people tell other people about it. And we want to be who people talk about for all of the reasons mentioned before. It's been difficult um, during COVID to try to get back to a place of, of I think, mutual kindness, within healthcare. I mean, everybody right now is still feeling um, a little less resilient than usual, a little more tired. Um, we're still working through things that happen maybe with our kids or our parents and, and you know, the, the adjustments we had to make. It's getting better it over is. time. But I think oftentimes, because again, we are the interface where somebody comes in to see us when they are feeling their worst in healthcare. It makes it really hard because in healthcare, you know, you and I never stopped working. We were there through the whole pandemic. We we were not um, taking time to walk in the woods or, um, you know, somehow replenish our souls. I'm not sure that anybody else truly was either in COVID, just to be clear. But um, how do you help people on both sides who are already feeling a little sensitive, a little tired, a little less resilient? How do you help them understand one another and come to a place where you can say, listen, I got you. You know, you are not in your best place, but let's, let's, let's try to work together on this. Well, related to my role specifically, uh, I, I have the good, the good fortune of bolstering our staff with our positive feedback from our patients. Every day, one of the joys of my work is to find something very, very personal that I can that I can share directly with our medical staff, heck, our nurses, our janitorial staff. It's irrelevant who it's about. If it's personal, it has detail. I want them to know what they did to touch somebody else versus the vague feedback of they did great. That to me, that's, you know, it's nice, but I want the details that 
A, reinforce the behavior, and B, bring a huge smile to someone's face to know that what they do matters, what they do uh, will, you know, there are things they do that can fill their own cup. Now, for the, on, the, on the patient side, I, I hear a lot of things that we could do better. It is one of the joys of my work also is to talk with these folks to learn what we could do better and to validate where we could improve and to restore their faith that their voice matters and you know, ideally earn their loyalty back, not with words, but with, with, with our proposed actions for the future. So it's really both sides. I guess, uh, interacting with, with, both, with both segments of, of, the, of, of those who interact w through the patient experience is where the groundwork happens and where, where I come alive as an employee. Because you and I work closely together on um, multiple service lines, yeah. I, I get to be the recipient of your um, emails that detail out patient experiences across the board. There's one favorite email that I think is maybe a monthly email that starts with all of the patient comments that are essentially like a level zero. Like these are the worst things that have come across our desk. And thank goodness we get to the end of the spreadsheet and we get all the, I don't know what it is, level five or uh, whatever the highest level is. And there are some great comments, but wow, it is so hard to read through all of the comments because people do have a broad range of experiences and not just our health system, every health system. So how do you help people, um, accept possibly the negativity of the comments, but also learn from them? Great question. It, stepping back, patient experience on the whole, it really comes down to one word. It's not whether we provide a great care, it's the patient's perception that we provide a great care. We wanna provide, we're gonna provide great care, but if the patient thinks we are doing other things that they weren't present to them, they could rake us over the coals for that. And that's their right. So it's an opportunity, number one, it, it, it's really it's really a conundrum in a way. In the past, uh, I used to put only the top ones on there, and then I'd put the the nasty grams at the bottom. And what we found is that you know people ran out of time. And it's a lot of a lot of feedback, and people didn't read those. And yet, where's our opportunity? How, where's our service recovery opportunity? Where's our fact checking? We, there was so much to learn from that. Sometimes it's entertaining. I mean, there are a variety, a variety of, I mean, you know, you've, you've you know, said, I really like this comment, which I very much appreciate that these things are looked at and considered. Uh, it's not just that email. You, know, you mentioned this email, this monthly email that comes in. It, ideally, it's delivered in a way that invites our leadership to look at it versus, oh, yeah, that patient experience stuff. You know, like, ooh, what is there for me here? What's highlighted that I can really learn from and how do we grow from an organization from this? And anybody watching this, like all feedback, you may wonder, you get that, that survey call and you, you know, is anybody gonna do anything about this? We look at every piece of feedback. We challenge change in order to make experiences better for everyone after that point. So the comments that you receive are, yes, that is a batch. Right? We take the learning nuggets from that batch for our change. And frankly, we take the positive feedbacks and we and we glorify the great things that we do too because the lion's share of, of our feedback is incredible. And it, it, it there's nothing I like more than to validate that work as soon as it comes into me. 
there are a range of comments. You have to take them where they're coming from. One was the ice didn't taste as good at, at this organization, at this institution, as in other places that I've been to, or maybe McDonald's. I don't remember exactly what the comparison was. And I was like, oh, I wonder what I could learn from this. I mean, maybe there was something bad going on with the ice in that machine that day. <laughs> to go down to the ice or, machine and give it a try or what? <laughs> I mean, actually, I regularly have water with ice in it from our cafeteria and our coffee shop. And I've actually never had a bad batch. But that doesn't mean that, you know, this person didn't have a bad batch at some point um, from one of the nursing units. I don't really know. But it, it is it is always interesting, too, that you actually have to be open to getting all the feedback and saying, all right, well, maybe there's nothing we can really do about the taste of the ice because maybe it's just related to the taste of the water and maybe they're on chemotherapy medicines that maybe cause their taste to be off. Um, but always being like, okay, what, what do we learn from this? What can we change? What can't we change? What do we just have to accept? And it's, it, there's a lot of different directions you could go in. I mean, you could really be chasing down some of these comments. Like that could be your whole job all the time, which I guess is, is sort of your job, right? All the time. It is. And you're right. right? It's, it's do we pursue the ice? Do we, you know, do we have a, you know, the equivalent of a, like a, a blind taste test of all the ice on the floors? You know, I mean, that's, of course, we're, that's probably not a level we're going to go to. But perception matters. Perception's reality. We know that experience can be marred by one small thing across the entire continuum of their care. Uh, it's everyone and also everything people encounter. We can be dazzling and charismatic and remember names, children's names, you know, how their child soccer, travel soccer league went. But if the ice wasn't great, we may get a marginal um, review from that patient. So it's critical that we don't necessarily poo-poo that, but we really look into that. You know, wh what could we do to change this? And much of that feedback drives our change too. And we look, we look at that stuff. It matters to me. It matters to my leadership. And uh, it will continue to matter. And I think it is, I mean, maybe this is actually an important thing for people to know. I mean, when you send these forward to me, you know, the chief, the other chief medical officers and I, we actually, we read this and we read our, we read the daily risk report with all of the issues that come through that are um, potentially a little hazardous to patient health. We read the patient advocacy report that comes through with all of the comments from patients who are concerned that their care wasn't at a level that they wanted. We read the patient experience comments. So if anybody's thinking that this is going into a void, I can't speak for any other person in my organization, our organization, or anywhere else, but I personally am reading these comments. And I think a lot of senior leadership does take these things very seriously. Agreed. And in what you say is 100% true. Um, that's why, we, you know, where I work, I believe that it, we have a world-class leadership looking at the voices of our patients for continuous improvement, period. Experience more and more, whether it's liked or not, it is drives future loyalty no matter the business and more and more emphasis. I mean, there is even things like reimbursement attached to patient experience. When we do this well, I mean, where do you want to send your loved one? A place where staff don't listen well, where there are lots of falls? Of course not. So savvy consumers can look up this information, and if they have a choice, they can send their loved one to, you know, Hospital B. If Hospital A is, you know, something they perceive to be not the ideal health uh, healthcare experience for their loved one. I mean, so it really does matter. We measure lots of things. We want to be seen as the best. And it's, you know, it's something that I go to work every day ensuring that, that we do to the, you know, the limits of my abilities for sure, which I still haven't found, by the way. So. I'm wondering if you have 
had the same experience I've had, which is that as I've worked with people that maybe finished their education or even started and finished their education during COVID, that because the lack of interaction with humans other than audiovisually um, was, was their experience of education, that, that when they actually reemerged into the workplace as perhaps um, young professionals, that they had to almost get skilled, retrained, reskilled in how to be a human and engage in human conversations. And I'm not even just saying the younger people. I'm saying maybe there's a group of people that, like, as a result of being not with other humans for three years, reemerged into the world and didn't know how to play in the sandbox well. Have you seen that in any way? You know, in many ways, the, the pandemic became a loneliness pandemic for a lot of folks. Sure, our youngsters, but even those who are isolated at home. Um, it, it, that is very, uh, you know, we're, we're cognizant of that, even from a training perspective. Like all our new staff receive patient experience training now. So that way, the person checking in staff is, isn't feeling awkward about it. They know the, the best practices that reduce anxiety for those coming into the building. Those who are coming into the building may be in that post-pandemic, you know, coming out of that loneliness place. Few like to admit loneliness. I mean, it's like, it's like fear. We'd much rather, you know, express anger than to admit that we're hurt or afraid. You know, these are just human conditions. And loneliness is something, too, that in a way, you know, could carry shame. Right? So in order to alleviate a lot of that, we train our staff on how to how to essentially engage with someone that reduces anxiety right from the get-go. And it's really not, quote-unquote, rocket science. It's a warm smile. It's eye contact. It's using someone's name. Someone knows right away if you're happy to see them or, more bluntly, who the most important person is in the room. They know right away. So it's critical that we set the stage appropriately. Well, one of the most enjoyable things that I do with um, medical staff, and not necessarily medical staff that are in any way, let's say, remedial <laughs> or, <laughs> or in, a, in a place of growth, we'll yeah. say. Um, one of the things that I enjoy doing is actually kind of shadow rounding or sitting in on visits that people will have in the outpatient setting or in the hospital and, and actually watching how the interactions go because it's very informative. I mean, we don't really know. You can say, oh, so-and-so is a great doctor, physician assistant, nurse. Um, but unless you're actually in there with that patient, it's really hard to know how that back and forth goes. So for me, I find it just fascinating and very helpful sometimes. Do you do that kind of shadow rounding yourself? Occasionally. Yeah, absolutely. It's an initiative that I, I want to take on moving forward to have a, a more consistent and you know, those listening, more consistent, still a vague term, but have it be something that is a prioritized aspect of the work. Uh, it's one thing to shadow around. It's another thing to see someone who doesn't have a witness, right? You get, you're likely to get someone at their best, which is great, but it's still that opportunity to give feedback to someone, which is a, a, a I say a, a, a fun thing to do. You know, and there are elements of giving someone that feedback where they hear it, where they will accept it, and they'll grow from it. And I think from your shadow outing, you you know, you may come up with the same you know opportunities where you know if you're resistant, to, if someone's resistant to feedback, it's it gets you into that then what uh, dynamic. But like anything, um, developing relationships with those staff that shadow rounding occurs with, it, it sets the stage for that authentic feedback. Because at the end of the day, our staff want to grow and they want to be their best and. Um, 
I, I think that those, you know, those characteristics alone make, make that process, you know, make those staff open to feedback. Um, I welcome all shadowing opportunities, mentoring, facilitation, you name it, anything that, that will make our brand, our, our, our patients uh, in general, more, more pleased about their time, bring it on. Yeah. And, and I feel the same way. Um, and also I, I went to shadow in the emergency room um, recently because that's one of the surface lines that I work with. And uh, the person I think was so concerned that I must be doing this because this person had done something wrong that literally the person couldn't make eye contact with me for the first 10 minutes. They just worked on the computer and didn't really say anything, didn't really talk to me. And then and I, I, was, I was like, I just want to be really clear here. I'm just trying to learn. You know, I'm not I'm not here to give you advice. I just want to know what is it like to be a practitioner in the emergency room? And I think allowing that person to understand that, look, you're the expert here. I, I'm not trying to be intimidating, but I, but I think it is sometimes intimidating. And I think obviously if you have somebody who's one of the chief medical officers come in and is following you around, you're thinking, oh, is my job at risk? But how do we create that place of comfort where we say, look, we're just, we're a learning organization. We just want to learn from what you're doing in, in your work. How do we do that? I think what's been helpful, at least for me, when I, when I go out with charge nurses or nurse managers who are new to their roles, their leadership is very much pushing it as an opportunity to get this right. Um, what I found in my rounding with some super clinical staff who might not have the same background as I do is it's very much like, how are we doing? Are we responsive? Anyone you want to recognize? All right. You know, very, and, you know, my, my, my uh, example is a little exaggerated for, for purpose. Um, whereas my approach is, is, you know, what would you be doing if you weren't in the hospital today? And yeah, what did you do for a career? And tell me more about that. What town do you live in? Patient opens up. Next time I go in the room, I know I, I have instant small talk. They are happy to see me. Does it have anything to do with their clinical care? I, I contend that if someone is, is, has easy things to talk about with that care team, that their stay is better. And frankly, it's better for our staff too, who go in the room and they know that patient by name. They know the, they know the patient's spouse or the plus one by name, and they know things about their life that they might be missing out on because they're here. And it adds to the overall compassion you know, from our end and it bolsters the relationship. So I think, you know, getting back to that question, it's the support of that top-down leadership that says this is this is going to happen, but here's why. And here's it, you know, here's not why. It's not to monitor you and 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 talk about what you're not doing well. It's to build your skills to embody those patient experience traits that align with what our what our customers want. So one of the things that um, people have noticed about notes that I write, and this is getting to your point about knowing patients, is in the notes, even though there's absolutely no reason in our current electronic health record to make these sort of comments, I will say, this person enjoys going to Harley-Davidson rallies. This person has three great-grandchildren that um, she cares for every Tuesday. Um, and actually try to round out people's lives because I think you're absolutely right that if people feel known whether it's a staff person or whether it's a patient, they feel like you really care about them, which actually I really come to care about the people that I interact with because there's usually a chance for connection that can be so much deeper than let me just look at your you know white blood cell count with you and you know look at what these numbers are telling me about your body. It's more like, you know, Wayne, I know that you play 
classical guitar. So tell me about that, which I'm going to actually ask you that question in a minute. So how do we create enough space in an interaction to ask questions like this? How do we encourage people to do that? Because it doesn't have to be a 25-minute conversation. It doesn't. How do, how do we encourage that? Well, so much of it, and it's what you do so well. It's the body language that shows the, int- the, 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 the speaker or the person you're with that you're really interested in what they have to say. And it's those traits like that. It's the appropriate eye contact. It's the body leaning in, paraphrasing where appropriate, asking probing questions. All of those things work toward getting to a place with anyone that you're earning the right to hear their story. If we think about people in our lives that we've earned the right to hear their story or not, we don't just give that away for nothing. And in that relationship that you're speaking about, right, someone wants to give their story away, but you know what? You've got to earn it in a way. And you're going to earn that a lot more. And you're going to enjoy your work a lot more when you know you've earned that right. Period. And you know, what you do and what m- most of our medical staff do that I interact with, you know, they strive to do this too. And it's part of their training. When, when, when medical staff onboard at our organization, they receive personalized, and by personalized, I mean tailored to their service line training not just so they can do well in their surveys, it's so that, so that folks understand what matters to our patients more than anything, based on hundreds of thousands of notes and of, of comments from them about their experiences, continuing to morph what's important to them as our times roll on. So like it's that body language piece. So, ma- so much matters. I ran into a colleague the other day, and I was so happy to see them in the cafeteria. And within five seconds, they pulled their phone out and they, they were half listening. And they were teaching me right away, even though I didn't say it out loud, that I was more excited to see them than they were me. This wasn't where we work. It was somewhere else, of course. And the next time I passed them, I said, hey, how are you doing? But I did not stop. And so we're constantly pe- teaching people how to, how, to, how to treat us. And for analogy's sake, it, it, we, we do the same thing with, with, our, with our, the people we're caring for. If we give folks a symptom or, or a signal, rather, that we have better things to do or we, you know, they aren't as important to us as, they, as we are to them, they will act on that and they will create their perceptions that are very difficult to change. So it's critical that we do all of these things in addition to, to providing great care. Well, I think you're, you're right. And I do think body language says a lot. And of course, you know, we're asked in, in our field, we're asked to gather a lot of data, which means a lot of times there's a computer and a screen that's in between the the person that's, that we're talking to and us and being aware, like you actually, you can turn the screen. You could actually look at the screen together. You know, this is, this is you, um, Mr. Jones, as the patient, let's look at these numbers so that we're interacting with each other and with the screen, you know, let's make sure we're always at the same level. So I don't come in and, and stand and tower above, um, you know, Mrs. Smith, because, you know, I don't have that much time, you know, you come in and you sit down and, Absolutely. You, and you take a minute because it doesn't even take a minute. You just, you're doing these small things. You're, you're absolutely right that I think it's, it's the body language. It's the questions that you ask that show that you care that they work at a, a metal foundry. You know, it's all of those things that kind of, that kind of come together. And yet I think it can be challenging because people are like, we don't have time. I got to go look at my phone. You know, I got to get this data entered into the computer. And I think it's helping people understand it doesn't take that much time. It's not that different than what you're actually already doing. You're just kind of modifying, you know, a position or an eye contact or a word that comes out of your mouth. It's not that 
time consuming. Every person in a way is like a present to open. You know, it's like a gift. Like, who is this person in front of me? What's what matters to them? How can I take an interest in them that makes their their healthcare experience a little more unique rather than that T word again, transactional. Transactional experience is the opposite of patient experience. And we do everything we can to not create that ever. That's that's why that's when outward migration happens, you know, to other places. Right. I, I know that I will go somewhere because something's on sale. Now, that's like a, a real life example. And the same thing about healthcare. If I think the service is better somewhere else, I am going to defect. <laughs> I am gone. Anyway, it doesn't take much. So it's absolutely critical, you know, all that you mentioned. One of the reasons that I have chosen for to work with our health system um, is because I was almost born in Maine. You and I had this conversation. You and I are both not born in Maine, but really have lived in Maine most of our lives. It was sort of an accident of our birth because our you family just is from me Maine. To everyone so in my sorry. life, and I'm okay with that. Oh my goodness, I'm so sorry. Um, but I think we share that sense that just deep, deep connections to where we live, to our communities, to the people that um, we've lived with for many years. And I think that the place that we work at, you know, there's people who have worked there. 35, 40 years, you know, there's people of, I think there's a four generation um, family that I'm aware of, you know, and, and I think that that at the end of the day is so critical to why we do the work we do and why we work where we do that we C want, we're culture. taking, yeah, we're taking care of the, our people, right? So instead of thinking about them as them and them as patients, it's us. And if we help all of us be healthier, then we're all going to be healthier as a community and as a state. So, I mean, that's my own personal feeling, but I, I don't know. I invite you to have thoughts on the matter. Maybe they differ, maybe they don't. One thing I know as I listen to that, Lisa, is having you work there in, your, in the role cements the fact that these things will continue to matter where we work. I mean, that is huge. I can come to work every month and I pass that comment out and I know I'm going to get something from you that validates not only the work I do. I mean, who doesn't like validation? Right? Show me somebody who doesn't. Uh, but it also validates the great things we do on the whole where we are. It's probably not unique to healthcare systems. It's just what I'm passionate about. And I believe that you know, we are, we, we provide world-class experience in addition to world-class care, uh, you know, cemented by our leadership group and the people they choose to hire that embody those traits that drive loyalty to us. And do you think that this is related to being in Maine in any way? Or do you think that this exists in some form in a lot of places? Well, I mean, I hope my accent hasn't been too, too nutso, which is, and I say that with, a, you know, a wink and a, and a, and a smile. Uh, but I, I think there's an element of, you know, relating to people who are from Maine, you know, and training our staff to know that most folks in Maine don't want to be called sir necessarily. They'd prefer to have their first name used. Is there, you know, we have staff start from other states. They call everyone, you know, Mrs. Belial, or and you might not like that if you're born in Maine. Most most folks just want their name used. So there are idiosyncrasies that come with working in Maine that I think staff here know because we live here and we, you know, we never want to leave Maine. I want to make sure that I ask you this question, because when I asked you to um, be on Radio Maine, you said, but this is this is a group of people that are creative and I, I'm not an artist. And, My emails are very know, creative, but we'll, I, that's I'm, a strong conversation for well, a different yes, day. Well, yes. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, 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 at your core, I, I know that you are a very creative individual, whether you're, whether you're doing it with a paintbrush or whether you're doing it with words and um, interactions. I think there is cre creativity at its core. 
However, the thing that I want to make sure to ask you about is your classical guitar, because I think that that is an art form that many people um, might be surprised to know that you engage in. Oh, absolutely. You know, other than my family, who's probably a little, you know, fatigued with uh, me taking over the, the living room for an hour every day. Um, but when the pandemic started, I, I, I dabbled more closely with classical guitar because, well, really guitar. I, I played it as a youth thinking it would make me cool. And, you know, at the end of the day, you know, th there's more that went into that than just my ability to hit a G chord. Uh, I was like finger picking more so than strumming. And um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I, uh, we, we bought or I bought a, a classical guitar, which is much different than a regular guitar. For those who aren't familiar with the differences, the neck is much wider, which means some much larger spans with fingers. The strings are nylon, a different tone held differently. Um, so much fun. So it was through that the pandemic that my interest and ability exploded. Uh, and I continue to enjoy and build and and. And while I am not like, you know, I don't have a gig every weekend at a po at posh establish establishments other than my living room. Um, I, I am known to play in the cafeteria at the hospital where we work. And I welcome anyone listening to contact me for a very schm fancy schmancy audition. Um, keeping in mind that my, my, my style is, you know, Baroque, romantic, uh, very technical. A lot of fun. I fall in love with with, with the, the dissonance that chords and, and note combinations create, and it makes me come alive. You know, learning a new piece. You know, it, it's it's like meeting a new person at the hospital. It's like I want to know about them. Um, it's 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 that honeymoon period that I have with every piece, and then it goes in my repertoire. And I'm, I I would say there are roughly three hundred pieces in my repertoire at this point. Very few memorized though. So that's the next goal. Well, I want to make sure that I um, end this conversation by um, giving a shout out to your mother, because I've, I've now heard from you at least twice that your mother will be watching this. And as I know, my mother, Mary, she she and my father, Charlie, they actually watch this every week and they give me feedback. So I hope that your mother, Wayne, will be watching this and will um, give you I guess whatever honest feedback she is want to give you. She has blinders on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She'll she'll love it no matter what. Well, that's good. Absolutely. And if you have fifty thousand views, please know that forty nine thousand may be her. Okay. I just just want to throw that out All there. Right. She's a, she's a lovely woman. Very proud of her. Happy to have her in my life still. At this, you know, I mean, I'm not by no means am I an old man, um, but you know, I never take advantage of you know just understanding the you know the opportunity of of you know, having the elder generation still in my life. Well, and I think that that, um, I agree with you. Absolutely. And I'm not sure that any of my children at this point have actually maybe watched any of these episodes of the show. This is nothing against any of my children. You're all wonderful. I love you in case you are watching this. Um, but I do love the fact that, um, my parents and clearly your mother, um, are interested in supporting us in our, in, in our ongoing kind of professional trajectories. So I think that that is another similarity that we share. Yeah, thank you, Lisa. And, you know, when you first asked me to come on here, I thought, oh, gosh, no, that's in front of other people. But then I was like, wait a minute here. This is such an opportunity to showcase, you know, what we do, where we work, but to expose, a, a, you know, a content that tr is truly magical in the eyes of everyone we serve. This is that exposure. No matter the bandwidth that this reaches, right, people will watch this. People will be curious. People may 
reach out to me as a result. And I hope they do because I want to hear from folks, not just for gigs. I do welcome that uh, for, you know, anyone interested in some Beethoven or Bach. But, uh, you know, with that said around patient experience, um, talk to me. I want to I want to help everybody look at how they can be even better to foster loyalty, no matter what it is you're looking to achieve in life. Well, you heard it here. If you happen to have a, a Bach or a Beethoven or Baroque classical guitar gig that you need to um, have taken care of for you in the greater Wiscasset area, you can reach <laughs> out to Wayne Parody. Um, and or if you're interested in having Wayne um, have a conversation with you or maybe even present on patient experience. I heard his grand rounds. It's really actually pretty great. Um, and it has been really a great pleasure for me to be here today. On Radio Maine, I'm Dr. Lisa Belial, and I've been speaking with Wayne Parody, who is a patient, our, the patient experience coordinator extraordinaire in our health system. It's been my pleasure, and thank you so much. Thank you, and I will not share any royalties from the guitar gigs with you. I'm just saying. So. Okay. It's good to have boundaries. It's been my, it's been my pleasure. Thanks so much, Lisa. All right. Thanks, Wayne.